1: Hi, welcome to another episode of the Standard of Truth podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Garrett Dorkmont, and I'm joined by my friend, Richard Leduc.
0: Well, Garrett. Uh, as the church is heading down the Old Testament path in the new year, and as last week we discussed the book of Moses, specifically chapter one, we thought we would go to episode two of, uh, of season two, this new year. By talking about Doctrine and Covenants, section 41.
1: We figured it was a natural transition. Absolutely. Uh, to go. Uh, Book of Moses, from Something, one. Yeah, something that's remotely relatable to what people are studying in church to something that's just not. And I Absolutely. Think that, um, uh, we realized that uh, for people who are primarily listening to podcasts because it, it follows along the come follow me curriculum, uh, that this will not be as helpful a podcast for you.
0: Yeah, we really look forward to you going back and listening to this podcast in 2025. That's what we're hoping
1: for, is we are front-loading this so that the next time we do Doctrine and Covenants, you... you oh, you're going to yeah, be so ready. Yeah, we, we'll have about three downloads between now and then, but then 30 million downloads, which means that every member of the church is going to download it at least twice. Uh, 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 maybe by then. I mean... It,
0: well, if the missionary work continues to grow, perhaps I, we'll have that many in 2025. That, and
1: that's exactly it. Well, why do I want to uh, – Doctrine of section 41 is, is a fairly obscure revelation. I would guess it's not one that you memorized um, among the other sections that you memorized <laughs> yeah, in their totality. We should have Richard quote the ones that he's memorized in their totality, but uh, maybe we shouldn't. No. Um, yeah, uh, just for the length of time. Um it's it's a, a revelation that that is, there's a lot of things going on surrounding it that I think provide some insights, both into how things make their way into the history of the church and also how uh, we attempt to interp- interpret those things once they are in there. And then also there's an insight that we can gain about Joseph Smith's character here in the early days of the church. So there's a couple things I want to start off explaining. Uh, Doctrine and Covenant section 41 is the first recorded revelation that we have in Ohio. It's that it's that point of transition between the revelations were in New York and now they're in Ohio. Now now the saints are are there in the Kirtland area. When I say saints, it's actually just Joseph. There's only a few people that have made it in February. Um, And the others are going to follow more in the spring. But Joseph arrives there in in February, early February. This revelation is not terribly long. And one of the things that we get out of it is the office of a bishop. I I believe we talked about last time when we talked about uh, the book of Moses, well, at least Moses 1, how incredible that revelation really was. One of the things we mentioned is this is months before there even is a bishop in the church. And it is in uh, Doctrine and Covenants section 41 that this calling in verse 9 is is the first time that the office of bishop is, is really mentioned in the church. And again, I have called my servant Edward Partridge, and I give a commandment that he should be appointed by the voice of the church and ordained a bishop unto the church to leave his merchandise and to spend all his time in the labors of the church, to see to all things that shall be appointed unto him in my laws in the day that I shall give them. Now, think about what's going on here. Edward Partridge is a very recent convert to the church. Now, look, the church is not even a year old. So the person who's, you know, well, yes, I've been in the church since the day it was founded has been in you know, for 11 months or, you know, 10 months. I mean, but there are people, of course, have been with Joseph since before then. And the way Edward Partridge comes into the church is actually through skepticism, not through just hearing and believing. So the missionaries uh, that are sent out by Doctrine and Covenants section 28, this is when, remember, the whole Hiram Page incident, which we have a whole season one episode that that at least spends some time on it, um, As a result of those false Hiram Page revelations and Oliver Cowdery uh, believing them, the Lord rebukes them, and and in Doctrine of Section 28, sends Oliver Cowdery on a mission to preach to to the American Indians, to the Lamanites, as it's it's referred to in the Revelation. Well, others are called to go with him, and so they, they go, and on their way, they stop in Ohio because Parley Pratt, one of the missionaries, used to live there, and he knows a minister there, a former minister friend of his who's Sidney Rigdon, and they're able to convert Sidney Rigdon, and Sidney Rigdon converts, you know, begins preaching the Book of Mormon and converts like half of his his congregation. And so all of a sudden, this church that has maybe 150 people in New York, in the space of a few weeks in November of 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 1830 there's between 100 and 200 people that are baptized in the Kirtland area. So the church is going to double in its membership in the space of, of weeks. Well, one of the people who was very disconcerted by this is actually Edward Partridge. Edward Partridge is a community leader. He's a businessman. He's, he's, he's done very well for himself and he and Sidney Rigdon travel together to go meet Joseph Smith. Sidney Rigdon because he believes. Sidney Rigdon reads the Book of Mormon for a week, gets converted and says, I got to go meet Joseph. Edward Partridge essentially says something to the effect of, I can't believe all these people are believing this. I've got to go meet this Joseph (laughs) person so I can prove that he's not really some prophet. And so they go with two different reasons, but when they get there Partridge is, is not only convinced that Joseph is a prophet, he he's baptized and he comes back to um, comes back to the Kirtland area and is going to become one of the real leaders of these Kirtland Saints. It, it's a pretty big transition for him though, all right? He goes from being a well respected person in the community and a well-off person in the community to being someone that people are now, you know, essentially making fun of. and worse, Right as his family makes this conversion to come into the church, God is going to command the Latter day Saints in New York to leave. He's going to command them to leave and to go to the Ohio, and that there you will receive my law. Right? So that's Doctrine and Covenant Section 37 and 38. We'll probably have a podcast where we spend more time on them. When we get to the New Testament. When we get, yeah, if we could get to maybe the Pearl of Great Price. Um, but only the articles of faith, that's when we'll circle back around to DNC 37 and 38. Um, but anyway, that they're, they're commanded to leave. And, and it's actually a pretty tough commandment for people because one of the things they're told to do is they're told them that have farms that cannot be sold, let them be left or rented as seemeth uh, them good. God commands these these saints who are suffering persecution in New York, especially in Colesville, which is the whole reason why they are moving to Ohio. God is commanding them to flee the land of their enemies. To to essentially lose all of their property, all of their status that they have in, in America is based upon whether or not they own land and how much of that land they own. Imagine you are somebody who has spent decades of your life, starting with nothing, working as a day laborer on someone's farm, digging ditches, digging wells, and and helping people harvest until you finally were able to buy a two-acre plot of your own ground. And then you work on it, and you raise it, and you, you're able to save enough money to now now you four acres. And, and then five years after that, you're able to buy another five acres. And eventually you got to the point where you, have by the the sheer sweat of you know you and your wife and your kids you've made it to where you own a 100 acre farm and you're actually a well-off person by the time you're you're 45 and then the commandment comes from god to leave that farm the farm that you've spent all of your life trying to acquire the form that gives you the right to vote, the form that gives you any type of respect in the community, and outside of those non-tangible things, the way that you provide for your family. The, the reality is this, this hits the Latter-day Saints in New York like a ton of bricks. In fact, there's a, a non-Latter-day Saint uh, newspaper that makes you know, a mocking commentary of this, saying that this command was resisted by such as had property at first. But after a night of fasting and prayer, they all decided they would do as the revelation commanded and immediately began making preparations to leave. Now, the paper thought they were making fun of the Mormons for being so gullible to believe that they should leave everything and move. But in in reality, it's pretty cool that they recorded. You know, they're mocking that they prayed about it, fasted about it, and all decided they do it. Well, as you might imagine, if you're in a community like Colesville, uh, in 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 New York, rural New York, and everybody there puts their house up on the market at the same time, you're not going to get top dollar. Uh, yeah. Then as now, the Colesville housing market is not overheated. Um, it, 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 it's a rare that anyone's even moving there, let alone that you're going to have dozens of people all put their farms up on the market at the same time.
0: Yeah, you list two houses in Colesville now. There's a crash.
1: Yeah, right now you list a house in Colesville. It, and the whole oh thing comes everyone's out. oh great. We might as well give it to the government. Hope uh, Hopefully the eminent domain my house <laughs> to build another path. Um, it, and so yeah. It, you know, as uh, one of the Knights, uh, you know, jo- uh, Joseph Knight reflected that, as you might imagine, we were required to make great sacrifice in the selling of their house. I mean, these people took a bath on on their farms. They They went from being well-off, well-respected community leaders to being essentially starting over from scratch, being poverty-stricken. Because they either weren't able to sell their farms, or uh, they they rented them, but that meant they didn't have any capital to to purchase land when they arrived in Ohio. Joseph Smith is 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 no different. He's under those same uh, constraints. He's not able to sell his farm in Harmony. Now he he doesn't even own all of his farm in Harmony. So I mean he's 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 not you know. He's not able to make the payments while he's doing the translation of the Book of Mormon and their payments to his father-in-law. So I can only imagine what family dinners were like after that. But um, the the reality is, is that Joseph is another person among these New York Saints that's going to be arriving in Ohio with essentially... Nothing. I mean, they're bringing whatever they got in their wagon, things like that. But as far as capital to get started, to go buy a bunch of land and build a house and plant a crop, most of them are coming with not very much at all. So you have a huge introduction into the church in Ohio of Latter-day Saints who are poor but not because they're just a bunch of drunks who've never thought to work a day in their life. They are literally poor because they followed the revelation of God commanding them to leave. It it truly is one of the the great sacrifices and miracles of the early church that we don't talk enough about. I, I think we talk so much about people moving from state to state and stuff that we forget what exactly is entailed in this in the move from new york to ohio people aren't just you know leaving behind the apple orchard they always liked they're losing their standing economically and standing economically even more so then than now which is hard to believe but your class standing then was even more important than than it is now if you didn't own land you were a failure period End of story. There, there, there was no way to, to, to come back from that. Well, Joseph is, is among these uh, people that is, is going to also make this sacrifice and, and he's going to go. Now, I know we started talking about uh, things with Edward Partridge and then we, we moved back into the New York Saints because I want to explain what's going on when Doctrine and Covenants section 41 is received. Joseph has now arrived in... Uh, in Ohio, Edward Partridge, you know, he gets converted, is baptized, and goes back to uh, Ohio. So he's there for a couple of months um, before before Joseph arrives again. And when Joseph arrives in February, Partridge is going to be called to to take this new office of bishop. And the um he's not really given a whole lot of directions, right? But already the early directions don't sound very good. Um, I, I can only assume at some point someone listening to this will either be a bishop or the the wife of someone who's a bishop and they will understand that part of verse 9 that says, uh, I give a commandment that he should be appointed by the voice of the church and ordained a bishop under the church to leave his merchandise and to spend all his time in the labors of the church. Again, Edward Partridge was a pretty successful businessman prior to being called to be a bishop in the church. Um, <clears throat> the amount of sacrifice that is required in our church by the lay leaders is, is really, it's frankly, it's stunning. Um, it's very different than most other Christian churches. Most other Christian churches are led by by not only uh, paid clergy, which is what, you know, if you're a bishop, that's what you're focusing on. Like, why am I not getting paid for this? It's not about the payment as much as it is about the training. Nearly every other Christian church, now there are exceptions, but most other Christian churches are led by pastors or preachers or or bishops or or however you want to call them, elders, presbyters, whatever you want to call them. Uh, in in various uh, churches, they're called different things. They're led by people who not only are being paid to do what they do; they have gone through intense graduate school training to do what they do. They, it they're they're not you know reading the scriptures in Greek by accident or because they picked it up you know you know with with a language training app. They they went to graduate school. Uh, and, and and got a, a degree, a, a degree in divinity, and part of that training is how do you run your local church? They they have classes on on pastoral care of your flock. How do you you know what do you do in a situation where where a couple comes in and thinks they want to have a divorce? Well, so they have a class. That they're gonna they're gonna write papers on how to use the scriptures to help people who are struggling with right. I'm gonna just guess that a your you know, your average Latter-day Saint Bishop listening to this podcast did not get to take a graduate school class on how to counsel people who are struggling in their marriage. Richard, you're in a bishopric. How many
0: Well, I think when yeah, you know, we were we were put in about a year or so ago, and I think the way that it went is that the outgoing bishop said, All right, here's the keys and uh and he's not talking about like priesthood keys. No, no, he no. Met, here's the he literal like, keys. Here's here's, here's how keys. you get and into then, the Xerox. Then machine. Then our, our bishop met with him for uh, for a couple of hours and just kind of did a download real quick and said, "All right, right, good, so, good luck."
1: So there. I'm not saying there's not training. There's of course all kinds of trainings well, that are held. But,
0: but this is, but this is something that I I I know that. Uh, You know, it it takes a minute to to grow into this and to understand even what resource and the church has done a lot of things to provide more resources and more things, but but it is um, it it can be an absolutely overwhelming feeling for a bishop. No
1: matter how much training the church provides, it will never be as much training as most Christian pastors have, right? Because you know, you, you have a bishop you know, who has a degree in business or a degree in law or a degree in you know maybe a medical degree, right? You usually, and again, I'm sure there's some exceptions, but you usually don't have a bishop who has a degree in theology, right? No. Who went to graduate no. school on how to be a pastor. Now, I know they're, I mean, they're not listening to this podcast, but I know there's some in the church, but they're just not listening to this podcast. And so what I mean is that even though you can you know you can take different trainings that help you know you know round out the rough edges the reality is in our church because we have a lay ministry you, you you are in many ways being thrown to the wolves you are being thrown into a calling that you're expected to be just as successful at as a professional paid graduate school obtained clergy is and your training is Here's the keys to the resource closet.
0: <laughs> I, I will say though that just just from, just from a, you know from a testimony or spiritual perspective on this, it does speak to the, the nature of uh, the spirit and the, you know what happens when bishops are, are called and set apart because what you're describing is something that is completely impossible and yet, thousands every year it's a lot like thing. sending
1: 18 year olds on missions it's yeah yeah and and they haven't ruined the church yet i mean i know people will say like well the church must be true otherwise people wouldn't be listening to 18 and 19 <laughs> year olds i went on my mission to wisconsin and they weren't listening there so i'm not <laughs> people say that all the time like you know church must be true or you know a bunch of 18 and 19 year olds no one would listen to them and i thought well, well, they're not listening to them. Oh, they listen to them in other places? Oh, my goodness. At any rate, as little training as you or your bishop might feel that he has, Edward Partridge had less. <laughs> Edward Partridge's training was, you're going to be called to be a bishop, and it shall be appointed unto him in my laws in the day that I shall give him. That's That's what he's going to do you're called to be a bishop over the church. Now, that's this a, is a shorter handbook than it is a very short now. handbook and it's not just uh under you know, hey, you're one of 40,000 bishops. You're a grand total of an bishop. You are <laughs> one bishop. There's only one bishop in the church. And in fact, this office of bishop is a much more powerful and prominent office in the early church because there's only one. There's not Dozens of bishops. I mean, I I live in Utah. I, I probably live within a five mile radius of how many bishops?
0: I mean, oh geez.
1: forty, maybe yeah, at least. Yeah, and, and I'm not even talking about the ones that have been released that are former bishops, <laughs> current bishops, right? Um, so, so it, it's it's a very powerful position, but there's almost there's very little instruction that's given to it. Um, and, but Partridge is told expressly to leave his merchandise and to spend all his time in the labors of the church. So you're dealing with someone who's a fairly well-off, prominent businessman. And the revelation God is giving him is telling him to now your job is to spend your time in the church. Um, interesting, the Lord provides some commentary on why he calls Edward Partridge. Verse 11, and this because his heart is pure before me for he is like unto nathaniel of old in whom there is no guile nathaniel of course you know the, this this revelation quoting uh, the scripture where where when jesus you know sees nathaniel coming he says behold an israelite in whom there is no guile um, i can't think of a uh, a better you know appellation to have the lord uh, give you that you know this person Uh, is pure of heart. This person doesn't have ulterior motives. This person isn't looking to find a way to aggrandize themselves at the expense of others. This person just wants to help and love others. These words are given unto you, and they are pure before me, wherefore beware how you hold them, for they are to be answered upon your souls in the day of judgment. So after saying something very nice uh, there's a little bit of a threat uh, that that comes in there uh, in verse 12. Now, Partridge it doesn't know it yet. He doesn't know anything about what his job is going to be yet, because DNC 41 only says he's going to have to do what the laws of the church say. Well, the laws of the church, Doctrine and Covenants section 42, is going to be received a few days later, and part of what it's going to outline is a radical, radical um, teaching related to church property and personal property in the church. It's going to outline the consecration of properties that members of the church are going to give their property to the church and that the church is going to then apportion out to people property by stewardship. And the person whose job it's going to be to do that is the bishop, is Edward Partridge. So he doesn't even know what he's signing up for when this revelation is given to him, when he's ordained to be a bishop. Five days later, he's going to have it outlined to him that, oh, you know the most precious thing in all of American history that matters more than literally anything else, private land ownership? Yeah, what we're going to do is we're going to give that all to the church and you're going to be the one who decides who gets what land apportioned back out to them. You know, wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 worse than an early morning uh, <laughs> priesthood meeting. <laughs> um, and that's not the only thing Parcher's is going to be required to do, because Doctrine of Section 52, received again just a, a few months later, is going to command him to go to Missouri and and he's going to go. And th- this is, is a huge ordeal. Even the fact that he's leaving to go on the initial uh, trip is a huge ordeal. And uh, his, his family is in a terrible position because what you have going on here is y- you have all of these Latter-day Saints arriving in Ohio with very little food, very little clothing, very very few means to do anything. And they're all arriving in you know late winter or very early spring. So the weather is still terrible. Well, the existing members there in Ohio are trying to take these, these Latter-day Saints in as much as they can. And so the Partridge family does that. The Partridge family is going to, going to take in many of these people that are just arriving uh, from Ohio to try to take care of them. And so when Edward Partridge is is commanded by Revelation to to travel a thousand miles to Missouri, what he's leaving behind is his wife, Lydia Partridge, and their family, who are all ill. They're sick because some of the Latter-day Saints that they took into their house had measles, and measles is, is can be very can be deadly. It can be deadly now, even more so then when they had no idea what caused disease at all, and every treatment they applied was obviously worse than the actual disease. But uh, she uh, talks about this. Lydia Partridge does. Uh, she said um, that their children had all contracted measles from some of the recently arrived uh, New York members who were staying there, and she wrote that their eldest daughter was taken down with lung fever. And while she was at the worst, my husband was called by revelation to go with a number of others to Missouri to locate a place for the gathering of the saints. The unbelievers thought he must be crazy or he would not go. And I thought myself that I had reason to think my trials had commenced and so they had. But this trial, like all others, was followed with blessings for our daughter recovered. So, You see a little bit of Edward Partridge's faithfulness here. He was not a, you know, uh, well, they they weren't even called Latter Day Saints yet, or they, you know, they're still calling them Mormonites. He was not a Mormonite in December of of eighteen thirty. By June of eighteen thirty one, he has been called to be the bishop of the church. He's been called to be the arbiter of taking in all of the private property of Latter-day Saints of the church and then and then distributing it out in whatever fair manner according to their wants and according to their needs, as well as serving all other kinds of religious duties. And now he's leaving his family to go on a thousand-mile mission that at best is going to take him at least three months because it takes three to four weeks just to get there, three to four weeks just to get back. That's if there's no problems. And and you have no idea how long they're going to stay there. He's leaving his sick family behind. He's leaving his businesses behind, which are also suffering. He's lost all of his community standing because he's become a Latter-day Saint. And there goes Edward Partridge walking to Missouri. So y- you get this the idea of the intense commitment of faith that someone like Edward Partridge has, that he he goes from being skeptical that Joseph Smith is a prophet at all, from essentially going to New York to prove that he's not really a prophet, to a month and a half later, being the first bishop in the church, to three months after that, being sent on this thousand mile mission.
0: Do we know any additional details to his conversion or just that he, he went
1: and... Well, so, I mean, uh, one part of it's actually pretty odd. So I don't know if it's it's certainly not inspiring, but (laughs) the first, the, the first thing that impresses him. So, you know, he's, I don't know how much he's grumbling on the way there. I mean, having traveled between Kirtland and, and, and Fayette myself several times, by the time you get to the Pennsylvania border, everyone's grumbling, you know, like, what are they doing here? Anyway. And, um, but he goes to Palmyra first because that's where, uh, you know, the Book of Mormon was published in Palmyra. So, you know, and when they go there, they see Joseph Smith Sr.'s, you know, in Hiram Smith's fields. And he, he remarks that he's impressed that their fields are like laid out orderly and that they're, you know, actually taken care of, which apparently is,
0: <laughs> it, it carries a lot of favor right that's, so he goes there this guy's this guy's a fake he's a phony i'm gonna prove it to him hey
1: those are some nice roses yeah. got hey, there hey that's how i would have planted that wheat <laughs> okay okay they can't be complete drunk idiots because they they laid it out okay i mean anyway and then he goes down to fat and he meets joseph and and he, he stays up all night talking with joseph and then he's baptized the next day really yeah
0: oh that's fantastic we don't know necessarily the details of any of that conversation well just- i mean
1: we the, there's uh some discussion of it, but yeah, there's this this uh, this this powerful experience that he has. And it's so transformative. I mean, I can't even imagine. Too. I mean, imagine Lydia Partridge. Your husband says, "I'm going to put a stop to this Mormonism right now," and then he comes back a few weeks later. So, I'm a Mormon, and also, by the way, I'm a bishop and I lead this church. It's it's uh, you know like a classic uh, you know. Uh, almost like a rom-com uh thing where the guy's like, I will, yeah, I'm not gonna let him build this here, and then you know the next thing you know he's the foreman leading the project. Yeah, that,
0: that is that is an impressive show of faith. Yeah, in, in yeah. just such a short period of time, it,
1: it, it's so transformative, and you see that with a lot of these people. Well, so that's one of the cool aspects of Doctrine and Kevin's Section 41, and and it's when the office of bishop is first introduced. And for a long time, there's only one bishop. And then you'll move to having two bishops. Um, but you are not going to have uh, the kind of situation where you have multiple bishops in the church, like we do today in the church, until very late in Nauvoo. Uh, really the last the last year and a half that, that Joseph's there, do you start to call other bishops that are going to start... Covering wards, which are you know areas of the city of Nauvoo, which is how we start to get our designation of a ward as a congregation. It, it's actually one of the things that's really weird to people who join the church when you say, "Oh, our ward meets there." To everyone else in the world, a ward is a is a geographic location, usually a political designation of a geographic location inside a city, not. My congregation, which is what it is to a Latter day Saint, but also to everyone else in the world, the term steak means a good meal. And to us, it's, you know, it's, it's a lot, it feels like a longer meeting when it's a steak conference. um At any rate, uh, but the cool, well, there's that's obviously, hopefully, that was kind of cool at least. But the, uh, one of the things I want to talk about is that the focus of Doctrine and Covenant Section 41. For a long time, was actually directed in a different way. So the section heading used to read like this in the 1981 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants, which is what almost everyone listening to us here, I'm guessing, read for most of their lives. I mean, I don't know if we have any, you know, nine-year-old listeners who are like, "Oh no, I remember when I was an infant." I
0: my daughter's nine; she yeah. doesn't listen. Yeah. Yeah. To
1: you or to this podcast? All of it. Yeah, to anything. Anything I've ever said. Right? It seems like they listen to things on YouTube. That's right. If we could find a way to get everything we say on a YouTube channel with some kind of pet or maybe a surprise opening of a... Yeah, I was going to say, next yeah. week
0: I'll open gifts and play with them. and <laughs>
1: If we could get everything we have to say <laughs> packed into a surprise doll, th- I think this is really a good way to spread the gospel. And anyway... Uh, at any rate, uh, the um, the the section heading said Revel- used to say revelation given through Joseph Smith, the prophet of the church, uh, prophet to the church at Kirtland, Ohio, for February eighteen thirty one. The Kirtland branch of the church at this time was rapidly increasing in numbers. Prefacing this revelation, the prophet wrote. The members were striving to do the will of God so far as they knew it, though some strange notions and false spirits had crept in among them, and the Lord gave unto the church the following. So that kind of locates the purpose of this revelation in that there are people in the church who are believing strange notions, false things, false spirits, and so God's going to give this revelation to correct them. Now, the problem with that is that As you then begin to read the revelation, you find that there's really not anything that talks about false spirits in the revelation. Uh, It's actually kind of a fun pastime. I mean, I'm not going to call anybody out, but it's kind of a fun pastime to go read Doctrine and Covenants commentaries written before 2013 and tragically even some written after that, uh, that are trying to make portions of this revelation mean what the section heading says. So where does that section heading come from? Well, it it explains it's coming from the history of the church. So why is that written in there if, in fact, as you go through the section, there's not anything that really... I mean, you know, there are ways you could try to find it. You know, he that receiveth my law and doeth it the same as my disciple, and that he that receiveth it not and doeth it not the same as not my disciple. You know, so people said, oh, yeah, that's a reference to these people that are following these false spirits because they're not really receiving it. And so therefore, I mean... But there's a lot of verbal gymnastics going on. There's a lot of there's a lot of it doesn't say it directly, but this must be what this means rather than a, a direct conversation. It's important to know that historically speaking, the church grew very quickly in the Kirtland area, as I said, you know, essentially doubling and then tripling the the whole uh, numbers of the church um, in New York. And it happened very quickly and also without very much supervision. So all these missionaries, you know, these four missionaries, uh, they, you know, Oliver Cowdery and, and, and Parley Pratt and Ziba Peterson and Peter Whitmer Jr. They preach for about three weeks in November of 1830 to the residents of the Kirtland area in Mentor, Ohio. And that's where Sidney Reagan's converted. Dozens and dozens and dozens of people are converted. Well, that's not actually the mission these guys were sent on. They were sent to go preach to the American Indians. So, after staying three weeks and having all kinds of success, you know, unlike every other missionary who's been in a super successful area, they essentially transfer themselves out. They, 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 you know, we've got to keep going. We've got a revelation. Maybe at this point, Oliver Cowder's been chastised enough. He's like, look, I. DNC 28 was enough for me. Let's, we were told to go preach. We we're gonna go preach. So they leave. Two of the most prominent community leaders among these people, Sidney Rigdon, who's it's probably about half of the members who have been converted in these early days in, in the Kirtland area, were members of his congregation or were, you know, because he begins preaching the Book of Mormon from the pulpit. Well, Sidney Rigdon leaves and goes to find Joseph Smith. Edward Partridge, who's one of these community leaders, also leaves to go find Joseph Smith. The missionaries leave, and they go on to what is eventually, they they go through Missouri, they end up in Kansas before they get kicked out, but that's a story for another podcast. Uh, Once again, one that we'll never We'll never tell. We'll never tell it, and it will be when we're, you know, Doing Philemon in the New Testament, probably, but um, um, imagine—you know, those of you, you know, who serve missions, or maybe some of you have lived in areas of the church where it's very rural or there's not very many members. Imagine if, in the most rural part of your mission, there were hundreds of people baptized all at once, and then they were cut off completely from any other direction from the church. They have no internet. They have no other uh, church uh, uh, leaders that are there visiting them. And six, seven, eight months go by. When you went back to that area, what might you find? My guess is not terribly sound doctrinal practices. You would, you would find some things that were not what you thought they were. I mean, my goodness, I experienced this in in the information age on a mission to uh, uh, you know a state in 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 Wisconsin. There was a, uh, a a branch where there was some conversions that happened, but it was this kind of out of the way branch. And when you went there to church, you had to go. Back out and check the name on the marquee to make sure you walked into the right church because of some of the things that were being taught and said there. Well, imagine what happens in 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 Ohio. All of these people have been converted. Several of them have been given the Melchizedek priesthood, so they're able to ordain people. They're able to uh, uh, they're um, uh, able to conduct meetings and things like that. But not only do they not have any of Joseph Smith's revelations because you know those, the missionaries didn't have any of those. None of them have been printed yet. They also didn't have uh, very many copies of the Book of Mormon, even. Because the missionaries had you know, only so many copies that they could carry, and their job was to go preach to the American Indians. So yes, there's some copies that are left in Kirtland, but most people don't have a copy. So you have all these people converted. There's no handbook of instructions. There's no churchofjesuschrist.org. There's no tradition and culture of the church that, oh, my dad grew up this way. There's nothing to govern people. And in the absence, well, that that void is going to be filled. It's going to be filled as it naturally is, and that is by the beliefs and practices that people carried with them into the church. It's not an odd thing that if I grow up believing that hell is a certain thing and I convert to a new religion that you know hasn't had a conversation with me about hell, that I would keep my existing beliefs about hell until I was told something different. That's actually very normal that you would keep your existing beliefs until you have a reason to change. Well, um, the Latter-day Saints uh, are going to be in this position where they are left without any direction. And Joseph, in January of 1841, he starts to feel, 1831, starts to feel very uncomfortable and sends John Whitmer with several copies of the revelations that have been received. Again, none of them are printed yet. We don't have printed revelations yet. He sends him two the Kirtland area to go check on what's going on with these members. Well, what does he find when he arrives is that these people are straight crazy. <laughs> uh, he, he, he he finds that they are doing all kinds of things that are not, uh, all kinds of things that, that don't even make sense. Part of what he writes here. The devil took a notion to blind the minds of some of the weaker ones and made them think that an angel of God appeared to them and showed them writings on the outside cover of a Bible and on a parchment which flew through the air and on the back of their hands and many such foolish and vain things. Others slid on the floor and such like maneuvers which proved greatly to the injury of the cause. It's actually hard to even understand what he's talking about there, right? That, that there are words on the back of a parchment that are flying through the air. Okay. I can kind of get that, but now also they are now on the back of my hand. I, I don't know if it's like a butterfly and it rests down on your hand. The parchment does at any rate, what John Whitmer sees disturbs him greatly. Um, and you know we have some other accounts. Levi Hancock is is an early convert in um, in Ohio. He's one of the people that's deceived by these false representations of spiritual power, and he, he talks about it. He talks about um, one of my most favorite named people in early church history, Heman Bassett. Um, Heman Bassett claims, this is uh, Levi Hancock writing later, he claimed he had a revelation that he'd received in Kirtland from the hand of an angel. And he would read it and show the picture of a crown that the angel declared to be God's crown, and then he would bear testimony of the truth of the work. Now, I can't think of a doctrine in the church that matters less to our salvation then what does the crown God wears look like? That's, I mean, ham radios has to be more, ham radios and food storage has to be more, more prescient, don't you think? More important. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it has to be a, a better, uh, uh, example. I mean, of the things that you could be like, this is what God's crown looks like. And if you don't accept that, that's what it looks like. Well, then you're, you're believing false doctrine. Um, uh, people sometimes get uh, strange notions about what's the most important part of the gospel. Interestingly, it's almost always something that they've decided is the most important part of the gospel, not what the prophets keep saying is the most important part of the gospel. Um, uh, Reminds me of a terrible missionary experience I had uh, where um, I had some good ones. I just don't talk about those. we went. I was on a team up with a member, um, you know, just me and a member going to go. We were trying to, uh, give a church video to someone and then at the same time also share, you know, some discussions. And the, and most of these always turned out being, you know, people just trying to get something free. Uh, there were a lot of prank calls. Um, I thought it was very interesting that when I was in Kenosha, Wisconsin, someone took the time to calculate out what the address would be were we to drive on a certain road directly into uh, Lake Michigan. Um, and that's the address that they they gave for, for their house. And so when we went to go deliver it, yeah, we... Wait a minute, four hundred. That and yeah, there are waves crashing, and that's where we're at. So, um, a lot of the a lot of them didn't pan out. Well, this person, unlike all of the others, <laughs> seemed to be genuinely interested, and they were super excited when we got there, and so. You know, we start talking about it, and the the guy's listening. He's like, "Oh, okay." You know, I said, "You know, we believe God has prophets on the earth today," and Joseph Smith. You know, so I start to tell the Joseph Smith story. I start to tell that you know Joseph Smith, you know, has this powerful experience. I'm about midway through a pillar of light. Yeah, I am. I'm in the middle of the discussion of you know exactly over my head, and the member who's with me (laughs) interrupts me very angrily. Elder, 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 elder! Just stop! Just stop! Just stop! He, he kept saying it like I was like killing somebody. He turns back to this investigator. Okay, this is not a member. This is not a part member family. This is some guy who was drunk one night and saw an uh, saw a, a message about you know our gospel videos, and decided he would order it. And now we're at his door. He knows nothing about Latter Day Saints. He doesn't even know that's what the name of our church is. You know, I have to explain myself twice, and then he's like, "What?" I'm like, "The Mormons." He ordered this, like, "Oh yeah, Mormons." Okay, yeah, you know, he doesn't know anything about us. And so this this member stops me in the middle of the of the Joseph Smith experience. Turns back to this guy, and, and, and in an angry way, not even in a nice way, angrily, like he's mad that the guy hasn't said, that's it, you've talked to me for two minutes, I'm ready to get baptized, turns back to the guy and he says, look, patriarchal blessings, that's all you need to know, patriarchal blessings, that's it. As you might imagine the person felt like they did need to know more than just the word patriarchal blessings and then asked us to leave. Um, so look again I'm sure this member meant well but he to him the you know his patriarchal blessing was you know I guess the the biggest source of faith to him. But it's not all you need to know as a member of the church. In fact it, you can I'm not advising it but you can certainly go your whole life as a member without ever receiving your patriarchal blessing and be endowed in the temple and married and sealed and move about your life and and you're fine it's uh it's it's not a saving ordinance in fact it's it's not an ordinance at all it's just a blessing and but to this member it was the most important thing so I can only imagine that He would have thought he had a picture of God's crown uh, were he living back then. Uh, There's another uh, person who apparently the way that they would receive revelation is they would jump up and grab the doorpost, so the, the doorpost over the door, and they would swing back and forth until they were getting into a full swing, until they were basically perpendicular with the ground, swinging back and forth. I can only imagine this was fun to watch. And then they would let go, which would cause their head to go slamming into the ground, knocking them unconscious. Surprisingly, when they woke up, they would then say that they had had many dreams and visions while they were asleep. Uh, and, And in the absence of anyone saying, yeah, that's not how Joseph receives revelations, it isn't by... Isn't by smashing his head into the ground in order to do it? Um, as Levi Hancock wrote, and he's very honest. He's writing this many years later. He, uh, you know, uh, of the whole idea of oh, here's these revelations. He said, and I believed it all like a fool. <laughs> so he's pretty critical of himself because he believed that these really were coming from them. To give you another idea of uh, the types of things that are being manifested, John Whitmer is going to explain even more fully again explaining you know their worship he said some had visions and they could not tell what they saw some would fancy themselves that they held the sword of laban and they would wield it as expert as a light dragoon okay so they're they're feeling the spirit and then pretending that they have the sword of laban in their hands as they spin their fake invisible sword around i mean It's one way to know that you're feeling the Spirit, I guess. You're waving it around. Um, Some would slide or scoot on the floor with the rapidity of a serpent, which they termed sailing in the boat to the Lamanites preaching the gospel. This is by far the best of all of the descriptions we have. um, That apparently people were feeling the Spirit in their meetings Falling on the floor and sliding like a snake while they yelled, I'm sailing to go preach the gospel to the Lamanites. In other words, these were the greatest fast and testimony meetings that have ever existed. <laughs> you were never bored. You were always excited. There goes Sister Johnson. You know, and you know, she's sailing to the Lamanites. Um as Whitmer concludes. Many other vain and foolish maneuvers that are unseeming and, and unprofitable to mention. Thus the devil blinded the eyes of some good and honest disciples. These things grieved the servants of the Lord, and some conversed together on this subject, and others came in, and we were at Joseph Smith, Jr., the, the seers, and made, her a mat- made it a matter of consultation, for some would not turn away from their falling, lest God would give a revelation. Therefore the Lord spoke to Joseph. So this is one of those places where it's very important to understand that the history of the church is not being written in 1831 when these things are going on. John Whitmer's history that I've been quoting from, the history that is today's history of the church, right, that that you have as Joseph Smith history as part of it, they're being written in 1838 and 39 and 40, and 41 and 42, they are being written more than a decade after these events took place. And so, as they're trying to write the history, as they look back on the events that were going on, they know that Doctrine and Covenant Section 41 is the first revelation that's received in Ohio. And what do they remember about getting to Ohio? Oh man, do you remember when we showed up in Ohio and people were sliding across the floor claiming they were sailing in a boat to the Lamanites preaching the gospel? Of course you remember that. It's the it's the most pressing aspect. And in fact, Joseph's going to receive multiple revelations. Doctrine of Revelation section 43 is going to talk about this. Uh, you know, several sections during this three, four-month period are going to directly try to handle the fact that there's all these not only false uh, representations of worship or feeling the Spirit, but literally false spirits that are trying to deceive people. Um, Again, we, we could talk more about, about some of those things. Uh, when, when Joseph re- receives the high priesthood, there's a manifestation of, of Satan that they have to cast him out of multiple people. So it's the most rememberable thing about those first couple of months in Kirtland that these people have some crazy ideas and they are worshiping in a crazy way. So it's not surprising that as they try to provide context, the writers of the history to this time period. Oh, that was the first revelation in Kirtland? Oh, yeah. Remember remember how everyone was crazy when we showed up? It makes a lot of sense. But one of the things that we uh, discovered when the... Book of Commandments and Revelations was 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 rediscovered, is that the earliest version of Doctrine and Covenants section 41 has a different uh, context that's given in the section heading. And um, I want to uh, share that here. Um, oh, I, I should also share with you what Parley Pratt, remember he's the one who converted many of these people. In his history, when he writes about, you know, so he, converts a bunch of these people goes down to Missouri when he gets back you know he finds everyone is crazy and so he writes he says as i went forth among the different branches some very strange spiritual operations were manifested which were disgusting rather than edifying some persons would seem to swoon away and make unseemly gestures and be drawn or disfigured in their countenances others would fall into ecstasies and be drawn into contortions cramps fits etc Others would seem to have visions and revelations that were not edifying and which were not congenial to the doctrine and spirit of the gospel. In short, a false and lying spirit seemed to be creeping into the church. Even Joseph Smith himself um, wrote this to Hiram. Joseph writes a letter in early March to Hiram, uh, in which he spells Hiram's name wrong, but he writes, writes this letter to Hiram, Um, And explains, I've been engaged in regulating the churches here as the disciples are numerous and the devil had made many, many attempts to overthrow them. And then he writes in a new sentence, it has been a serious job. So uh, it's clearly the way they remember these early days in Kirtland is we are just fighting for our spiritual breath here against these false representations and false spirits that are deceiving people. But um, as I said, in the, in the earliest uh, uh, manuscript, the heading that John Whitmer wrote uh, in 1831, when he copied this, this revelation into the book of uh, commandments and revelations, he instead wrote at Kirtland, Geauga County, uh, Ohio, given to the church in these parts. It pointing at the office of Edward, and again they never use last names in, in any of these headings or in any of these uh, revelations, so it's Edward Partridge, pointing out the office of Edward. Also there was a man by the name of Copley in the township of Thompson who had requested his brother Joseph and Sidney Rigdon to live with him and he would furnish them houses and provisions. And Joseph. And then Joseph inquired of the Lord and received as follows. Now that is as different a context of the revelation as you could possibly get. The, the, the context that was provided in the history of the church was, oh yes, this revelation was received when everyone was crazy and Joseph needed to receive a revelation to, to help settle things. Instead, this originally written context provides a very different understanding of the revelation. And what do you find in the revelation then? Um, verse 7. And again, it is meet that my servant Joseph Smith should have a house built in which to live and translate. And again, it is meet that my servant Sidney Rigdon should, should live as seemeth him good, inasmuch as he keepeth my commandments there are references to where Joseph and Sidney are going to live. Why are there suddenly references to where they're going to live? Well, that's because Lehman Copley has said to Joseph and Sidney, don't settle here in Kirtland. Come settle on my... Lehman Copley has a thousand acre farm in Thompson, Ohio, which is like 20 miles away. And... You know, he's a converted shaker. He's one of the people that's converted. Uh, if you want to learn all about Lehman Copley, we have a previous podcast that talks about Doctrine and Covenants section 49, which is all about uh, the, the mission to the shakers that, that is caused by him. The reason why I said this gives you an insight into Joseph's character is Joseph is arriving early February, In the middle of Ohio, I mean, northern Ohio, right there on the lake. I mean, anyone who's been in Cleveland in February, I don't even need to describe anything else. They already know that sounds terrible. Joseph has left everything that he had. He is arriving without anywhere for him to stay. He doesn't have a house. He doesn't have any money to buy or rent a house. He doesn't have any land or any money to buy or rent any land. And as he arrives, this wealthy convert, Lehman Copley, says, no, 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 don't settle here, Joseph. You need to come settle where I have this huge farm in Thompson. And I'll give you houses. I'll give you provisions. I'll take care of you. The interesting aspect about this is if I were Joseph, I would have already said, When do we leave for Thompson, and how quickly can you give me food? And Joseph doesn't do that. He knows he's been called by God to go to where he was at. And instead of simply saying, Well, God must have provided this, so I guess we're moving to Thompson. He instead asks God. And the revelation he receives, he at least interprets as, You're not going to Thompson. There will eventually be a house built here. Now, by the way, that house isn't going to be built for years. For years, Joseph is going to live uh, in various people's houses. He's going to live in the Morley house. We all know he's going to live um, in in Newell K. Whitney's house and then Newell K. Whitney's store. And then he's going to eventually move down to Hiram, live in the John Johnson uh, farm. I mean, Joseph isn't going to actually have a house for years. But he essentially turns down this offer of free land, free food, free housing because he asked God. And And I like to juxtapose this against Joseph Smith in 1828 when he doesn't see any possible way that he could pay for the printing of the Book of Mormon. It seems impossible that he could pay for it. And Martin Harris, one of the only people outside of Joseph's family who believes that Joseph really has plates and that he's really translating them, and certainly the only person that Joseph knows who can actually pay for the printing of the Book of Mormon, Martin Harris says, Joseph, I really, I really need to take the pages to show my family. And Joseph asks, but the answer is no, you can't take them. To which Martin Harris says, you know, I, I really, you know. And so Joseph asks again. And then Joseph asks again. And instead of taking the word of the Lord, when when he first receives it, he keeps asking and asking and asking until he gets the answer that he thinks he wants. And then, of course, the pages are going to be lost, as as we all this, you know, we all know. The Joseph Smith of early 1831 just a few years removed from that incident, is in pretty dire straits. The commandment of God has required him and all other New York members to leave everything and to come to Ohio. And Joseph's worried about his family. He's worried about Emma. He's worried about his, his, his parents that are going to be coming along. He's worried about how he's going to take care of himself. And it seems to be this fortuitous presentation from Lehman Copley. Hey, I've got you covered. And Joseph takes from Doctrine and Covenant section 41 that he's not supposed to move to Thompson. Instead, he moves in with other people in Kirtland, and that's where the church is going to be headquartered because that's where Joseph is. The other aspect of this story, not only does it reveal that Joseph... Now isn't going to follow simply whatever the dictates of the secular world are as far as where do I get my next meal. Now he's going to uh, he's going to ask God. But the other interesting aspect of this is that only a few months after this, again, if you go back to our podcast and Doctrine and section forty nine, you'll you'll learn. Lehman Copley is going to apostatize. And there are some Latter-day Saints who have settled on his property. Joseph isn't one of them. And he is going to evict all of the Latter-day Saints from his farm. And they're going to lose again all of their time, all of their labors, all of their crops that they had spent working on that farm. So I can only imagine what a catastrophe it would have been for the early church if all of the church had moved to Thompson because that's where Joseph was. If Joseph had just simply taken the offer, because that's what was in front of him, and that's what he needed, without asking God, or perhaps getting the answer from God to stay in Kirtland and then just going anyway, then it would have been a much more difficult thing for the church, as the entirety of the church would have been evicted from Lehman Copley's land uh, in Thompson. So I think it's 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 one of those cool insights into Joseph Smith's personality and his character. Joseph Smith was flawed. Joseph Smith claims uh, that he is this rough stone rolling, that he has uh, that he has areas that need to be broken off for him to be polished. But the difference between Joseph in summer of eighteen twenty-eight, who doesn't seem to want to take the Lord's answer because. He's so desperately worried about the the, the physical needs that, that he and, and the soon-to-be church are going to have to publish the Book of Mormon. To the Joseph of early 1831, who has even more pressing needs, and so do the Latter-day Saints that are following, but instead he's going to put it entirely up to God. We don't have record of him asking God over and over, are you sure I can't go to Thompson? He said he'd give me a house. Instead, you have Joseph... Uh, who is who's desperately trying to follow the dictates of, of what god would have him say and uh, have him do and and to me it it's it's inspiring and it's also a little condemning because i don't even think i would have asked god were i to have arrived and i had nothing and someone said hey you can come live on my farm i would have said okay and i would have gone without even asking um but joseph has has developed this desperate desire to try to do whatever god wants him to do Anyway, hopefully you enjoyed that story. You learned a little bit more about Doctrine and Covenants section 41 and also the crazy things going on in Kirtland after the first conversions. And we hope to have you join us again next week. Thank
0: you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit
1: standardoftruth.com. Until next time.